0: So uh, so we're going to go ahead and get into, into the message this morning. We're, we're starting a new sermon series just simply entitled The Cross. And we're, we're moving into this season. Easter's coming up in about four weeks. And we're going to have a Good Friday service on uh, March 30th, which is Good Friday. That's the day we celebrate the crucifixion of, of, of Jesus. And even though it's a t- terrible and a horrific Thing when you think about crucifixion, it was—it's a wonderful thing for us, and that's really what we want to preach about over the next several weeks here. I'm going to read from two portions of Scripture to begin with: John three fourteen uh, to begin, and then Numbers twenty one verses four through nine, and then we'll get started together. Now, this is these these Scriptures are so interesting to me. John chapter three is. Uh, is, is a place where there's some verses where most people know the verses, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. If they're lost and never even been to church, I feel like they can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he says, for, for he did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And tucked in there, just hidden away, while Jesus is talking to one of these Pharisees, he gives some insight into how we ought to look at the cross. He gives some insight into what it meant when he was hung on the cross and lifted up. And he says it this way in John three fourteen. He said, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, personally, I like the Bible, and I love it whenever Jesus gives me authority to go back into the Old Testament and interpret something. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes whenever I first started reading the Bible, I'd read something in the Old Testament, I'd be like, I don't know what in the world that means. I mean, Moses got a bronze serpent holding it up. That's weird. What's going on there? But Jesus gives me some authority. He says, now here's how you need to interpret this passage. He said, even as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So when we're going to talk about the cross, that's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his crucifixion. And here's what it says in Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll pray together. It says, then they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. You ever get discouraged? It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died, And therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone... When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Can we pray together? Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we never want to take your word for granted because we believe, Lord, that, that there is transformative power in your word. And so, God, we open our hearts, we open our minds just to give some focused attention to your word. And we pray, God... That you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to every single one of us. Because God, there's something that happened on the cross that, was, that, that is the defining moment throughout all of history. It changes everything. And God, so often we live in lack and we live in fear and we live in brokenness and we live in a lifestyle and in a pattern, God, that we should not be living in because you purchased something for us on the cross. And so God, I'm just asking that you would remove every distraction right now. And that, God, you would bring weight to your word. That, Holy Spirit, you would bring it to life. And I pray for each and every person because, God, what you dealt with on the cross is, is, is something that every single one of us is dealing with this morning. And so we can receive something if you, if you will allow it, God. And, and, and I pray that we would be able to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On the cross 2,000 years ago, now we talk about the cross a lot, especially as Christians, and we've got a lot to say about it. One of my favorite verses uh, concerning the cross is Hebrews 10, 14. And here's what it says. It says, for by one sacrifice, by one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it says, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, that, that says two things to us. One thing that it says is that what Jesus did on the cross for us, if we can fully understand it, what Jesus did on the cross was a perfect work. Everything that we will ever have need of in this life, whether it be physical, mental, social, relational, psychological, every single thing, spiritual especially... Every single thing that we will ever have need of, Jesus did a finished work on the cross and said, I've made a payment for it to already be done. And he declared it is finished on the cross. And literally he declared this word, it's called tetelestai is the Greek word. It's a crazy word because it's only used twice in the entire Bible. And he uses this word and it means paid in full. It also means completely complete or perfectly perfect. It means the work that I've done here, I want you to know today that everything's been done. It's been paid in full. So it's already paid in full, but see, it says that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, Jesus has already paid the price for you to receive every single thing that you will ever need. But how we receive it and how we appropriate it into our lives is progressive. It's ongoing. I was saved 2000 years ago on the cross, but right now and I was saved from the penalty of sin, but right now in my life the spirit of God by faith is saving me from the power of sin. The spirit of God is saving my mind, he's saving my behavior, he's saving me progressively. And there are things that Jesus paid for me on 2000 years ago on the cross that I've not even fully come into yet. Amen. I mean, I've been a Christian uh, for, for 10 years now. I've been, a, I've been preaching for eight. And there's still things that I'm discovering about the cross that I didn't even realize. There are things that as, as I seek Jesus, as I pursue him, I begin to realize he unveils things to me. And he says, don't you realize I've paid for that too? Don't you realize there's more that I have for you as a Christian that you've not even come into yet? And for the most part, we as Christians have rele- relegated the cross to being just simply something that, that allows us to go to heaven when we die. And let me tell you something, there's so much more than that. That's only beginning to scratch the surface of what, he is, what he's done. And you know, this message is not going to be very practical. And I'll tell you why it's not going to be very practical. Practicality is good, but the Scripture says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. They say, well, that's goofy. You're just talking about a man that hung on the cross. What does that even mean for us? But the Scripture says, but for those who are being saved, see, current progressively being saved, for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then Paul goes on to say, because through wisdom, the world didn't even know God. They used wisdom, they applied principles, they did all these things, but they did not know God. He says, it pleased God that through the foolishness of preaching the message of the cross that some would be saved. And there's something that happens that when the message of the cross is just simply proclaimed to a person, nothing else, when it's proclaimed to a person, that it ignites faith in the human heart. And when a person has faith in their hearts to believe what Jesus has done for them, something supernatural happens. It unlocks the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to bring that thing to a reality in my life. Amen? So that's what we're looking for. Now, now we, we read these scriptures John 3 14, Numbers 21. And we talked about John 3:14, where it was at, and Jesus saying, As Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we started to read these verses, and it talks about how the children of Israel, Israel was moving from Egypt, which was a place of bondage, and they were moving into the Promised Land. And it's really a picture of how we as Christians are moving from the bondage of sin in this world and we're beginning to move into the fullness of God's promises that He's paid for us on the cross. Amen? We're moving into those things, but the problem is that just like them, we're going through a wilderness season. It seems like we don't yet have the things that have been purchased. Well, if he paid for healing, how come I'm not healed? If he paid for my family to be saved, how come they're not saved? And we go through this wilderness season where oftentimes we're still thirsty, we're still hungry, we're still complaining, and we often get discouraged. Amen? Now, they're in the wilderness. They're walking into the fullness of these promises. They're asking the same questions we as Christians ask. And over and over again, God reveals to them, look, what you don't understand is I've already paid for you to have the promised land. It's already been done. It's already yours, but your mind is all messed up still. You're believing a lie. See, they got discouraged, it says, journeying along the way. And in your Christian life, you'll often get discouraged journeying along the way, won't you? You'll be journeying and, and, and trying to live the Christian life. You go to church, and church is hard enough in itself because everybody struggles trying to find a church that they like and all this stuff. And then you get in there, and there's crazy people there. And, and I mean, it's hard enough, the Christian walk by itself, but then all of a sudden you face some circumstances and difficulties, and you're just like, man, this is messed up. They got discouraged along the way, but let me tell you something. You get discouraged when you believe a lie in your heart. They had a wrong belief in their heart about who God was, about His goodness and about whether or not they had truly provided for them. Because their, their, their argument was, the reason they got discouraged was because they were in the wilderness and they kept crying out, there's nothing to drink here, there's nothing to eat here, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. You know what that worthless bread was? It was manna that God was raining down from heaven on a daily basis. In other words, God's saying, look, somewhere along the line, you all have believed a lie. Because if you look back... Every single time you complained, I actually provided for you exactly what you needed when you needed it. The problem is, I just didn't provide it the way you wanted it. And when you didn't get it the way you wanted it, you got discouraged and you started complaining. And then you, not only did you accuse your leaders, but you accused God. And you say, God, where are you at? How come you brought us out of Egypt just to let us die in this wilderness? Because we're thirsty, we're hungry, we want all this stuff, and you ain't showing up, and we loathe what you give, us, give to us on a daily basis. It's a, you know what? I know we got a preacher that preaches the word and stuff like that, and we got all that stuff, but it ain't enough. It ain't good enough. I'm still thirsty. I'm still hungry. I still want more. Right? And it says, at that point that... Now it says, and God sent in fiery serpents among them. That's what it says, Scripture does. It says, God sent in fiery serpents among them. Now some scholars would say that this is a permissive tense in the Bible. Now what that means is, is that it wasn't that God wanted the fiery serpents to come in. It's just that when you rebel against God and choose Satan's ways other than God's ways, you open the door for him to come in. Now see, God doesn't want you to be attacked by evil. God doesn't want, he doesn't want evil to happen in your life. But God has a certain way about him. And when he tells us to do one thing, and we choose to rebel from God's ways and pattern, it's not that God wants us to experience evil, but when we choose the ways of darkness rather than the ways of light, we open a door to the serpent in our life. And so many people... They've opened these doors to these serpents in their lives, and they've been bitten, see? They've been bitten. That's what happened. The fiery serpents came in among them, and they were bitten by fiery serpents. And many of them began to die at this point, right? We open the door. Now, here, let's, let's talk about this for a minute, because in the Bible, God uses symbols a lot. Have you ever noticed that? Now, why is it that he's using the serpent? What's what's the symbol of the serpent? Now, if you you read throughout the Bible, you'll see so often that Jesus and and Paul and and God himself in the Old Testament, they're using symbols for things. Like, for example, in the Old Testament and the New, the oil, that's why we use anointing oil, is symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what the, the oil is symbolic of. Uh, You you go in different places in Scripture, and the wind, the breath, the wind is symbolic also of the Holy Spirit and how He moves and how He operates. And you see the wind. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was really just a box. It was a gold box, but yet it represented Jesus and the presence of God among the people. And there were symbols in in, in the book. Now, Now, we talk about the cross and the cross is a symbol for Christian people. Listen, I got—I used to before I became a Christian, I had buddies, every one of them, about it, a handful of them, they had a cross somewhere tattooed on their body. You ask them what it meant, they ain't got a clue. You know what I'm saying? It's just a cool symbol, right? Put a cross on your body. You don't know what it means, but it looks cool and it looks good and it symbolizes something. But here's what's interesting is if, if I was to ask most people what the cross symbolizes, they would say salvation. It symbolizes what Jesus did for us on the cross. And for us, that's true. But throughout history, do you know what the cross has been a symbol of? It's been a symbol of forsakenness, of a curse, of abandonment from God. It's a symbol of torture. It's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of everything opposite of what you would consider to be good. And when people looked at the cross, they never thought about anything good at all. And it was totally different. It was a symbol that meant something completely different. And this is why, how we begin to understand why Moses said or why Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. And we'll begin to understand that because the serpent, if we go back and we read in the Bible and we start to figure out what the serpent is about, the serpent shows up in the very beginning, doesn't he? Y'all read the Bible, right? If you've, if you've checked it out, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent shows up in the very beginning. And he's kind of slithering and he's doing his thing. And the scripture says, And the serpent was more deceptive than any other beast of the field. And the serpent comes in and he begins to tell a lie to Adam and Eve, to humanity. And the lie is, has God really said that you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because he knows in that day that you eat... That you'll be like God's knowing good and evil. In other words, the serpent is saying, you know what? God's actually holding out on you. If you live the Christian life, you're, there's so many good things that you're not going to get to experience. And he says, what's better is if you reject God's way and if you simply become your own God. You decide for yourself what's good. You decide for yourself what's evil. And Eve hears this and she says, you know what? This sounds really good. It sounds like wisdom. And not only that, it, looks, it tastes good. It, it sounds good. I like this. So she convinced her husband, and both of them chose to eat from this. But see, when they bit into this, they were bitten as well by the serpent. They were infected with a poison. That poison was called sin. And see, we're bit by the serpent every single day of our lives when we experience breakdown in our families, when we experience sin that causes damage, when there's abuse, when there's rape, when there's fear. When there's hatred, when there's torment, when people are dying of drug overdoses and so many different things that we experience in our world today, it is because we've been infected. We've been bitten by a serpent and there's this venom that's living inside of us and it's called sin. And God created us to live forever in perfect harmony and communion with Him in a place called Eden which meant pleasure. We were to ever be growing and reflecting the image of God and His goodness and everything that He was and love was to be at the center of everything. But all of a sudden we were bitten and hate entered in. Adam and Eve's children, one of them killed the other one. Violence intensified. Governments were born. People went to war and none of these things were ever God's plan. But the problem is is that humanity had been bitten by the serpent. And now you see God and he, he speaks to the serpent first and He speaks in a natural sense and He says to the serpent, you are cursed and from this day forward you will crawl on your belly. He speaks in a natural sense, right? He literally speaks to the animal that Satan was using. But then He speaks to the thing behind the serpent. He doesn't just speak to the symbol. He now speaks to the thing that it symbolizes. The serpent symbolizes Satan. The serpent is not Satan. And he speaks then to Satan and he says, Look, I'm going to put enmity between the woman's seed and between your seed. And he said, He's going to crush your head and you will crush his heel. And my argument for this sermon is that on the cross is when it seemed that Satan had crushed his heel, but he was really just crushing Satan's head on the cross. And that prophecy that God spoke to Satan back in Genesis 3.15. Look, Satan was trying to resist it the whole time. If you read throughout the Bible, in the book, look, Cain tried to kill Abel. Satan moved in Cain to kill Abel because he thought maybe this was the the woman's seed. It was the woman's seed. And he moved him to kill him. You go to the book of Exodus, he's moving Pharaoh to kill the children because he thinks out of these, the woman's seed is going to rise up and he's going to destroy me. It gets to Jesus' time, and Herod is moved by the serpent in violence to kill all of the children in, 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 in Israel or in Bethlehem, specifically under the age of two. And the serpent's moving throughout history. And in the book of Revelation, it says the serpent is still at work in our world system looking to kill the seed of the woman. He's looking to destroy Christianity in our homes, in our schools, in our community so that our children in the next generation will not know Jesus. The serpent is still at work looking to kill the seed of the woman. but see, the seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. And when he came, he put an end to these things. And he he took all of those things. So we're talking about these snake bites being poisoned with all that is missing God's mark. Everything that is missing God's mark. We were bitten with that venom. We were were consumed by all of that. Now in verse 7 and 8... What they say is, when they realize that they've been bitten by these serpents, it says, they come to Moses, they say, we've sinned and spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that he would take away the serpents. So Moses prayed for the people. And then it says, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks looks at it, he shall live. Now here's what we do with God. We do exactly what they do. We get bitten by the serpent. We have this evil in our life. We experience this thing that's going on in our life. And rather, rather than looking to God, we say, pray to God that God will take away this serpent. Now, let me tell you something. Until Jesus comes back, the serpent is not going to be taken away. But what you need to realize is that there's already been a victory over the serpent. What Jesus and what God is saying, the problem and the reason you're in bondage so much is because you never look to me. You only look at the serpent and what he's doing around you. The only time you'll even call out to me is whenever the serpent bites you and you feel the effects of the venom in your life. Then you'll call out to me and you'll say, take this serpent from me. But he's saying, no, I don't want to take the serpent from you because if I take the serpent, you'll still be in poison. You'll still be infected. What I'm saying to you is quit looking at the evil of the world. Quit focusing on all the negative that's taking place and begin to look to Jesus. Begin to look to the solution. Get your eyes off the problem. Stop focusing on the problem every day of your life and begin to turn and focus on the solution because whatever you behold is what you reproduce And we get this wrong so often in the church because we will get up in church and we will preach about sin and we will preach about sin when more than anything we should be unveiling the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because when a person sees Jesus Christ and they see his love and his goodness, you know what it does? It transforms them and all of a sudden they leave the serpents behind. All of a sudden healing comes from the serpent bite. And you have a million serpents all around you looking to bite you, but when you are looking at Jesus, those things cannot touch you because they have been defeated on the cross of Calvary. Y'all with me this morning? Now, this is good good stuff. I really like it. See, it says in verse 9 that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. He looked at the bronze serpent, and he would live. If anybody had been bitten, let me tell you something. Everybody in this place, you've been bitten. You have been bitten, you've been poisoned, you got an infection on the inside of your soul, and it needs to be dealt with. And I can sit there and look at the serpent all day long and say, please, somebody take this serpent away, but ain't nobody going to take that serpent away. You need to quit looking down, you need to start looking up. That's the big issue at hand. He says, if anybody look Now, this word for look is a little bit different. It's a, it's, a, it's a special word for look, but it means to look attentively and expectantly. To scan and to meditate. It's an expectant look of faith. I thought about it being like this. I thought about it being like a man that's drowning in the ocean. And I don't know, if, you, if I imagine if I'm drowning in the ocean, I'm going to look for a lifeguard somewhere near shore. Amen. I'm going to be looking for this. And I'm not just going to be kind of nonchalantly giving it a glance. Oh, there's a lifeguard. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be looking expectantly for this person to see me in my situation and come running after me and save me. I'm going to scan him. I'm going to meditate upon what I'm seeing. And what God is saying is this isn't just a glance. This this is a look where you say I'm beholding this thing and I'm going to get everything that I can get out of it. I want to look. I want to study it. I want to know it. I want to fix my gaze upon Jesus and upon what he's done. He says as many as looked, they live. But what did they look at? they looked at a bronze serpent. It's the strangest thing in the world to me. God says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the thing that bit them, that poisoned them, and I want you to take some brass and some bronze, and I want you to beat it and beat it into a serpent and then put it on a stick, put a snake on a stick and hold it up. It's weird, isn't it? I talked to somebody about this the other day, and they, they said, that snake on a stick, that sounds like something y'all would eat in Clay County. <laughs> I said, amen. You copperhead down there. So he puts a snake on a stick, and he holds it up, and as many as looked at it live. Now, wh- what is the symbolism here? What's he trying to say? Now, It's a bronze serpent. We already know what the serpent is. Serpent throughout history, it symbolizes Satan and it symbolizes all of Satan's works. It symbolizes his evil. It symbolizes his hate. It symbolizes abuse in the world. It symbolizes perversity. It symbolizes lying. It symbolizes all of the things that we know are evil in our world. And he is that symbol. But see, bronze is something special. In the Old Testament, bronze was always symbolic of judgment. Bronze was always symbolic of judgment. There was, in the temple or in the tabernacle, when they would come, the first place that you would see bronze was when they would come in to the tabernacle. There would be something called called the bronze altar. And at the bronze altar, there would be a priest standing there. And if I had sin in my life, and I would, and I do, and I did, right? Then I would, if I were in the Old Testament, I would bring a lamb that was without spot, without blemish. It was perfect. It was wide. It had no impurities. I would bring that to the priest, and the priest would say, lay your hands on this lamb. And I would lay my hands on that lamb, and my sin would be imputed to that lamb. They would take that lamb, slaughter that lamb. The blood of the lamb would be shed. It would drip in a pan underneath the bronze altar. They would place that lamb on the bronze altar and they would put fire to it. And the judgment of God would come upon my sin that was upon that lamb while the innocence of that lamb would come upon me. And my sin would be paid for for about a year. And then I'd have to come back and do it again. See, there's been one sacrifice that has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. See, when Jesus died on the cross, I don't have to come back anymore. It's already been paid for. It's already been done. My sin has been put away. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. The Old Testament reveals that God never truly wanted blood and dead animals. What He wanted was our heart and our soul, but He knew the only way He was going to get it back is if He went to the cross. And so he went in our place as that sacrifice. And listen, when Jesus was lifted up, the bronze represents judgment. See, the, the snake, the serpent was judged. Every work was judged on Calvary. When Jesus went up on the cross, he became everything that Satan was. He became everything that evil was. On the cross, he became the curse. He became all of these things. And God judged every bit of the evil on the cross. But he was spotless. He was sinless. He was without blame. And there was something that happened on that cross when he said, it is finished, telestai, perfectly perfect, completely complete. What happened is there was a divine exchange in the spirit. Everything evil that we had done, where we had been poisoned and bitten, he went up upon the cross. Even though he was clean, he took it all upon himself. And just as he received everything evil due to me, now by faith I can receive everything good due to him. There was a divinely ordained exchange on the cross. There was an exchange. Everything I deserved, he took. Everything I was, he took. Why? So that I could have everything that he is. And that I could have everything that he deserves. Now this is, one of the, this is what the, they call the gospel here. This is good news. This means I don't have to earn it. This means I don't have to fight for it. It means that if I can believe, Jesus freely gives me these things. Now, now I want to get into this list. And I'm going to go through it rather quickly. And I've got eight things that you can kind of follow along with me. And you're going to be able to use this in your prayer life, and all sorts of different areas of your life. And you, it's, in, it's in your notes. But the first thing that Jesus did, the first exchange that took place on the cross, number one, is that Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Put those verses up there. In Isaiah 53... It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Next verse says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Would you agree with that? That every single one of us, we have turned and every one of us have went to our own way. We rebelled against God. We turned against God. We all went our own way. But here's the good news. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. See, that word iniquity, it not only means our sin, but it means our rebellion. And it means all of the effects of our rebellion. Because just like I said, when we turn from God, we open the door to things that we do not want in our lives. And we wonder how they got there. And the Lord says, what this is called is iniquity. You're suffering the consequences of choosing a different path of taking your own way. And the Lord, by his righteous nature, it's not that he wants you to suffer, it, but he has to lift his hand because he can't go that path with you. You understand, well, it doesn't mean that he's not running after you. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you anymore. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want you back. It just means that he, can, he gives you free will and you choose your own way and you suffer the consequences for it. But he said, you know what, I love you so much. I love you so much that I'm willing to take all of that iniquity and I'm willing to lay it upon myself. See, because most people get a bad picture of God. What they see here is that God the Father is angry, but Jesus loves us. And so God the Father takes His wrath out upon Jesus and punishes Him there. But let me tell you something. God takes His wrath out upon sin on the cross. He does. But what He's doing is, it's God the Father in Christ taking the fullness of the punishment upon Himself. God has wrath towards sin. He hates sin. But He loved you so much that the cross is the place where God's justice, His wrath, and His love meets. He has wrath towards sin, he has hatred towards sin, but he loved you so much that in your sin, he said, I'm going to take all of your sins, and not only your sins, but every sin throughout human history, every single point of it, and I'm going to lay it upon him. And the scripture says when he was in the garden of Gethsemane praying, that he said, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And that cup, I believe, was the punishment of God. And he took that punishment upon himself because he wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of the nails. He made the steel that went into the nails. He was afraid of the punishment that he knew would come as a result of the wrath of God towards sin. And he knew in his own physical body, in his own flesh, he didn't want to receive that. But he, was, he took that all upon himself so that we could be forgiven. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There are so many people that are, have become Christians. They say to me all the time, you know, I'm being punished now for something that I did in my past. Let me tell you something about your past and how God views it. God can no longer, if you are a Christian, God can no longer punish you for past sins. He can't do it. He can correct you lovingly as a father, and he will correct you if you are his child. But He will no longer punish you for past sins because He punished all of your sins, past, present, and future, on the cross of Calvary. And for Him to punish you again after He did that would be double jeopardy. He would be unrighteous in punishing you for that. So the punishment has lifted and now He looks upon you with grace. He looks upon you with love. He said, this is as the waters of Noah to me. And, uh, uh, he says, and, and he said, I'll never be angry with you again. I'll never rebuke you in that sense again because my wrath is lifted because I poured it out on the cross of Calvary. Now here's the issue is that somebody's going to pay. Somebody's, the sin, our sins are going to be paid for. And either you can allow Jesus to pay for them or you can pay for them yourself. And I want to choose Jesus. The second thing is Jesus was wounded That we might be healed. Isaiah 53, we read it, it said that 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 he he is surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's a terrible translation. It actually literally is pains and sicknesses. Surely he has borne our pains and carried our sicknesses. Now, in the book of Matthew, they actually translate it accurately. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it says this Matthew 8, 16, 17, you got it up there. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and look at this, and he healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And they're quoting Isaiah 53. He himself took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. In his own body. Now, this is the atonement. We believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for everything that we would ever have need of. All the effects of sin, spirit, soul, and body. And Jesus laid it out like this. One one time to a man who was paralyzed, he said to him in front of a bunch of religious leaders, he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? In other words, he's saying the same way that you should believe your sins are forgiven is the same way that you should believe for your healing. Because they were both paid for at the same time, in the same way. When Jesus took your sin in his body with the stripes on his back, he was taking your healing in his body, your physical healing. But the issue has always been an issue of faith. It was the people who had the faith that were willing to believe and press in just to touch the hem of his garment. It was the people that were willing to tear off a roof to drop their paralyzed friend down at his feet that were able to receive the healing. The problem is people say, well, God doesn't heal anymore. God doesn't do miracles anymore. The reason he doesn't do any miracles anymore is because that statement that you just made, you made a statement of unbelief. And when you have unbelief in your heart, you cannot receive any of the effects of the cross of Calvary. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's why when we pray and when we preach the gospel, not only should we believe for people to be saved, we should believe for people to be healed and we should pray the prayer of faith. Why? Because Jesus took my sickness in his body on the cross. He took it. doesn't mean everybody that we pray pray for is going to get healed because we're flawed. But it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't pay for it. You know, Paul in the first Corinthians, he's talking to to the people at Corinth, and he's saying to them, look, he's saying, you know the reason that many of you are weak, and many of you are sick, and many of you are dying prematurely? He said, you're doing that because when you receive the Lord's Supper, you're not discerning the Lord's body. Let me make this argument to you. This is a little bit deep. I believe that the Christian church discerns the Lord's blood pretty well. The blood was given for the payment for our sins the forgiveness of our sins. But Jesus' body was given for our physical healing. And Paul says, the reason many of you are weak, many of you are sick, and many are dying prematurely is because you're not discerning the Lord's body. You look at the blood, you say, I'm forgiven, but you don't believe you're healed. You don't discern the Lord's body. Amen. That's good. Number three, Jesus was made sin that we might be made righteous. You see these exchanges that are taking place, right? You see the exchange. It's right there in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes it abundantly clear. It says, He became sin, or the Lord has made Him to become sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That means that on the cross, let me tell you something, on the cross, Jesus was not a liar, yet on the cross, He became a lie. He was not an adulterer, yet on the cross, He became adultery. He was not a homosexual, but on the cross he became homosexuality. He was not abuse. He was not any of those things, but on the cross he became every foul and detestable and unholy thing that you could ever imagine. Every sin for every person on the planet. He became that thing, and that's why he typified himself as a bronze serpent. He was saying, I become the judgment for the most ugly thing you can ever imagine. I took all evil upon myself, every last drop of it. I completely exhausted it all. And he said, but yet he knew no sin. He had never sinned a day in his life, yet he took it all. And you know, while he was hanging there, while all that sin was on him, you know, the Bible says when he prayed, Lord, take this cup from me, I believe that was when the Lord began to lay the iniquity of of, of all of us upon him. And when he laid that iniquity upon him, you know what happened? It says that he began to sweat great drops of blood. You ever heard when people get saved, they say, I, I feel like a weight lifted. Can you imagine the full weight of all that sin on him in a moment of time? I believe I'd probably sweat drops of blood too. And he went to the cross with the weight of the, the full weight of that sin. And when he was on the cross, you know that it says for, that from noon, he, he was hung at 9 a.m. and he hung until 3 p.m. And at noon, it says the sky, uh, the sky became so dark... People wrote, historians wrote about this day. They wrote about it and talked about how darkness covered the land over, over the Roman Empire throughout. It wasn't just in one location. There was darkness everywhere. Because there was so much sin on the earth in Jesus, on G, upon Jesus, in one moment of time, he became sin. He became the living symbol of sin. He became all of those things in a moment of time, and the sun hid its face. Couldn't even look at it. And after he had took the full weight of it, he cries out, it is finished. And when he cries out, it is finished, an earthquake hit in that place. Historians document that as well. And the earthquake so shook the temple that the veil that was in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And what he was saying is, guess what? It's finished. The veil that kept you from the presence of God, your sin that separated you and I, there is nothing any longer that will ever separate you from the presence, from the love, from the power, from the wisdom, from the goodness of God. Everything has been torn down the middle and every sin you have ever committed has been washed away, set free, cleansed. See, we talk about about that. We talk about that, that, that Old Testament lamb that the sin was imputed, but there was also something in the Old Testament called a scapegoat. And they would lay the sins on this scapegoat. Y'all, y'all know about scapegoat because they'll use that in local news. You know about the, We're going to blame somebody else on this and he's going to become the scapegoat. What does the scapegoat do? The scapegoat takes my sin upon himself so that I don't have to get the punishment, but the scapegoat would run out into the wilderness. See, he didn't just take away my sins. He carried them away. The Bible says that God says he looks at my sins. Look, I remember the sins I committed in my past, and some of them were messed up. Some of it was nasty. But you know what he says when I bring it back up to him? What are you talking about? I don't remember that. I've chosen to cast that as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And here's what I love about the cross as well, is that we can preach this gospel not just to... Because here's what I think Christians do. We think this gospel is for pretty good people that need Jesus. This gospel is for the abuser. This gospel is for the murderer. Look, if he paid for my sins, he paid for their sins too. See, not only did he take the sin of molestation upon him, but he took the effects of the molested upon him so that in one fell swoop the person who molests a child and the child who was molested can both be set free, forgiven, and healed. And that's scandalous. And we don't like to preach that, but what that means is that I can go into the prison to murderers. I can go down the road to a person that we know is a pedophile, and I can preach the gospel, and they can genuinely repent of their sin and find salvation. It's not just for good people. Matter of fact, if you think you're a good person in this place, you probably need to come to a place of repentance. Because ain't nobody good. There's no one righteous but one. And see, here's what we believe, though. We believe we're going to go to heaven because one day we thought we were Christians. One day we said a a prayer. And most of us live under legalism. We believe we're going to go to heaven because we believe sort of in God and that we come to church on occasion. You're not going to go to heaven because of that. That's called legalism. If you believe that you can be righteous by anything that you do, including prayer, church, reading the Bible, none of those things make you righteous. There is one thing that makes you righteous. That is believing that Jesus took your sins upon the cross and you confess in faith that he is Lord and that he was raised from the dead and your sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to you. And that's the only way that it works. That's the only ticket. I'm not getting in heaven because I serve God and because I preach. I preach because I know Jesus paid for me to be there. And I want you to go with me. Number four. Jesus tasted death that we might share his life. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone." Then in verse 14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken flesh and blood, he's saying, you and I, we took on flesh and blood. It says, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Let me ask you something. You don't have to raise your hand necessarily, but I'm going to raise mine. Anybody in here ever had the fear of death? You're afraid you're going to die? You're afraid somebody in your family is going to die? Look at what it says there. It says that because you took on flesh and blood and you had a death sentence in Adam and Eve. See, God, you know that God never intended for us to die. The Bible says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so on the cross, what Jesus did, even though he was perfect, even though he did not deserve death. See, the wages of sin is death. He didn't deserve death, yet he died in our place. He went into the lower parts of the earth, and on the third day, he was raised again from the dead. We were never made to die. We were made to live eternally, but Jesus tasted death for us. And here's what he said. He said that he came and he took back the one who, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. That means that what happens, and I believe that the Lord's going to do this today. Some of you all that have a fear of death and you're always afraid that something is going to happen, I'm telling you that's from the enemy. And when you realize that Jesus took death for you, that you might have eternal life, there's something that breaks off and that fear of death lifts because he has destroyed it in your life. Now, it says that he tasted death for us that we might share his life, right? So he's taken my death that I might enter into the fullness of the life. And it is an abundant life, amen? Number five, Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Galatians 3.13. Now, I'm giving you a lot of verses, but this is one of those sermons, folks, that I want you to take with you. You know how you you listen to sermons and you're like, well, you, you forget it the next week. This is the reason we gave you notes. There's a lot of verses here. Why? Because you can go back and memorize these verses. And every time these things come up in your life, you say, no, there was a divine exchange that happened. Sorry, devil. I'm no longer under the curse. I'm under the blessing. And sometimes, here's the issue, is that you just allow these things into your life. Sometimes you have to be bold in your faith and and declare these things. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us or bought us back from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That means in the Old Testament it was written in the, book, in the law that if anybody hung on a tree that there, it was because of the curse and that the curse was upon them. So he was hung on a tree in order to take our curse and it says why? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now I don't know if, you, if you've read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 28 where the curses are, but they are messed up. Like, it's a, if you want to read a depressing portion of Scripture, read Deuteronomy 28 on the back end. It's ugly. Like, he says, all right, if you're going to obey God, here's some blessings. If you're going to disobey God, here's the curses. And look, I mean, it, it, it talks about everything from, like, a person having bad knees to having skin infections to a man leaving his wife. All of that stuff falls up under the curse. We've not realized that. We just think, that's just human nature. You've got to try to do a little bit better. No, we're under the curse. But we're no longer under the curse in Christ. Deuteronomy 28, let me give you a list of some things that are indicators of the curse. It talks about mental and emotional breakdown, it talks about repeated or chronic sickness, it talks about miscarriages and infertility problems. Talks about the breakdown of marriage and family alienation, people leaving one another, families being broken. It talks about financial insufficiency. Even though you tend to make enough, it just seems like you don't ever have enough. Right? And then it talks about being accident prone. There's always accidents. You're always fearful. You're always in darkness, always worried. And then it also talks about suicides and unnatural deaths. And all of these things are indicators that we're living under the curse. But see, what I want you to understand is that he became the curse so that every single blessing that is mentioned in the Scripture would be laid upon you. Because the blessing is the exact opposite of that. The blessing is that you have healing in Christ, that your family is whole, that your relationships are sound, that your marriage is healthy, that your children are strong, that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, that everything you put your hand to in your job, in your workplace, all your money, everything is increasing And flourishing so that you can be a blessing to the world. That you are so blessed in your life that it overflows to other people. That's the blessing. And he says that you will receive the Spirit of God that God himself will live in you. And you will walk in that blessing because he's taken the curse. So that you might live in everything that he deserved. And all the blessings in heavenly places have been given to you in Christ Jesus. Number six. Jesus endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. Now, this is going to be the most scandalous verse I'm going to read all day. But it's the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. Y'all okay? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Well, y'all think about that. Everybody's like, yes, man, I'm getting a stinking new car. Everything's changing. Things are going to change. We're going to get that money. I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about what rich and what poverty is. Poverty is not what we often think it is. Poverty poverty is according to the Bible the definition of poverty is to be in thirst, to be in hungry in hunger, to be naked, and to be uh, in need of all things. You don't have anything. You don't have any. That's that's truly what poverty is. That is abject poverty. And it says that even though Jesus was rich, he was so rich he created the universe. Dude, he owns all the gold, all the silver. He owns everything ever. And not only that, he can create anything he wants to at any given time. Dude could make a dollar bill if he wanted to and just give it to you. He can do what he wants to whenever he wants to. He is rich. Yet on the cross, he hung naked on the cross. He was thirsty He was hungry and he was in need of all things. And though he was rich and owned all things, yet he became impoverished on the cross, completely in need of all things. Why? So that through his poverty you might be made rich. Now, let me tell you what rich is because rich is not America's definition of rich. It does not mean you're going to get a Bugatti and and some nice clothing and a new purse and stuff like that necessarily. What it means is that your needs are provided so much that your needs are so provided that you are able to provide for the needs of others. That's what it means to be rich, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come searching for nice things in the earth. What he came searching for was to bless others. And God wants to so meet your needs and give you an abundance. Why? Not so you can spend it and waste it on nice, lavish things, but so that you can actually be a blessing to others in the earth. That's what it means to be rich. Somebody, oh, hallelujah on that one, right? That makes you feel good, doesn't it? I want to be rich, praise God. I want to be so rich that my needs are met to the point that I can meet other needs of other people. Not so I can get me another nice vehicle. or Even though, look, there's nothing. I understand. Don't, I'm not trying to bring condemnation. But what I'm saying is, is this is the goal of God transforming your hearts. You ain't going to be able to take your vehicle or your house or any of these things with you. And what you need to consider is that we are to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Realize that these things here on earth are going to burn. Yes, God wants to make you rich, but not so you can increase your empire. It's so that you can increase God's empire and the kingdom of God on the earth. And when God gives me something, I need to, take, I need to thank him for it and say, God, you give me an abundance. But at the same time, it's not for me and my selfish reasons. It's for the other people that need and are without and impoverished. Hallelujah. That's good. Number seven. I'm getting through them. One at a time. I got a little feedback. Number seven. Jesus endured our shame that we might share his glory. It says, for it was fitting for him... For whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of, captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. One place in Hebrews 12, 2, it says that he despised the shame. He endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. When he went to the cross, listen, he, he created human beings. And you know what those human beings did to him? They spat on him. They flogged him. They beat him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on on his head, they said, "If you if you are the Messiah, why don't you bring yourself down from the cross?" They mocked him, they ridiculed him, they hung him on a cross naked. He took upon himself in that moment all of our shame. You know, I, I deal with people, and shame is a spirit, and it dominates people's lives. And we've seen people get set free from shame, and it is a miracle when it happens. But. It carries people and oftentimes people carry it and they don't even know they have it a lot of times. What I notice is that I I I read a statistic recently that said something like three out of every four women right now in America are abused sexually in some way before their 18th birthday. That's an insane stat. I almost don't believe it. But then all of a sudden I I got to a place where I was counseling with, with women on a regular basis and you find out that the actual truth is that they do. And you know what the one thing is that they carry when they're children and they deal with something like that? It's always shame. And they always carry that shame. And what Jesus wants a person to understand is that on the cross, I took your shame so that you could have my glory. That that shame would be broken off your life. That you would know that you're a child of God. That you're set free. That you don't feel dirty anymore. That you don't feel worthless anymore. That all of a sudden you you begin to feel clean. I've seen people get set free from this. And all of these things that I'm speaking to you about, they're miraculous. I wish I could give you principles on how to make it happen in your life, but the truth is you just need to worship Jesus and believe. You need to pass from poverty to abundance. You need to pass from shame to glory simply by saying, Jesus has done this for me and I'm going to walk in it. I'm no longer walking in shame because Jesus has taken my shame on the cross. When you confess it out of your mouth, it is a faith confession and something begins to happen because you believe it, the Spirit of God enacts it in your life. These are, king, these are kingdom principles. They're different. This is what faith is. And we begin to see these things turn. And God took our shame on the cross. And here's the last one, number eight. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance. I want you all to come to the music if you will. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance. See, on the cross, when he was on the cross, here's what I want you to understand. Y'all know this. He quoted Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, didn't he? And in that moment, he was entering in. Let me ask you a question. Again, you don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you have ever just felt like God has forsaken you? Like God's nowhere to be found, that he's distant, that he's not going to help, that, that, that somehow I've been left behind, I've been forgotten about? On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, He entered into the fullness of our God-forsakenness. And He did that so that we might share in the fullness of His acceptance. And in that moment when He cried that it is finished, just as I said, the veil was torn and we were freely accepted. Ephesians 1, 6 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. You know, many people, they suffer from rejection. They feel unwanted. They feel unloved. They feel worthless. Oftentimes, they feel excluded. And a lot of times, this happens because of abuse. It happens through adoption. It happens because a parent abandoned them or even a spouse abandoned them. It happens because of divorce. And when we get rejected like that, it gives us a distorted image of God. It gives us a distorted image of other people. And all of a sudden, that rejection enters into our life. But Jesus said, no, I have taken upon your rejection so that you could enter into the fullness of sonship, of true love and acceptance. Amen? I want you to stand to your feet just for a moment. Y'all can begin to play if you like. Because I know I've I've covered a lot here. And what I want us to do is I want us to just confess some of these things. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and, and make this a reality in our lives. And I I believe that for some of you, whatever it is that you're dealing with, the struggle that you have, that you're going to be able to pass from death to life. That you're going to be able to pass from the curse to the blessing. I believe that you're going to be able to pass from sickness to healing and health. From sin to righteousness. I believe that with all my heart. Because it's just by faith. Scripture said in Numbers 21 that as many, they got their eyes off the serpent just for a moment. They got their eyes off the curse. They got their eyes off the sickness, and they looked to the solution. Jesus on the cross. Listen to me. As soon as you truly, this is why we're doing a sermon series on the cross, because when you understand it and you exercise faith in it, when you, the moment you look to the cross, and you see your poverty, your sickness, your sin, your shame, your rejection, The moment you see all of that on the cross, it's right to remain in your life, ceases to exist. So I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. The first thing that I want to do, and this is is primary gospel, we want to know that your spirit is healed first and foremost. And that's why he took our sin upon the cross, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus and, and exercised faith to believe for salvation, right now, if you want to do that, you want to pass from death to life, you want to pass from sin to righteous, and you want to become a follower of Jesus, just where you are, I'm not going to ask you to come forward because I'm going to pray with everybody, but just as an act of faith, would you raise your hand and say, that's what I want to do. I want to give my life to Jesus this morning. I want to pass from death to life. Just raise your hand. Let me see where you're at. Anybody else? Anybody else? Now, every single one of us, we want, we, we want to pass from all these things. We want to receive the full benefits of the cross. So where you're at, well, I want us to pray this prayer together and then, we'll, then, then then we'll worship together. But here's what I want you to say. Just say this with me. Say, Heavenly Father, I thank you that on the cross there was a divine exchange. Jesus was punished and now I'm forgiven. Jesus was wounded. And by his stripes, I am healed. Jesus was made sin so that I would be made righteous. Jesus has tasted death for me that I might share in his life. Jesus was made a curse so that I would receive all the blessing. Jesus endured our poverty so that I would share in his abundance. Jesus took my shame and has now crowned me with glory. Jesus endured my rejection and now I have his acceptance. Father, we just thank you right now, God, for all that you're doing in our lives. And I believe in this moment, God, that we are passing from death to life. We're passing from sin to righteousness. And Lord, just as that scripture said, we don't want a greater revelation of sin or we don't want a greater revelation of the works of Satan. We need a greater revelation of the cross in our lives. And God, I'm praying right now that you would open our eyes to the revelation of the cross. Lord, so many times we try to, we try to get people to worship. We try to force people to worship you, God, and have better music and have better singing. But I believe that if we all in a moment of time could understand what you did for us on the cross, what you paid for us on the cross, we wouldn't need one musical note because our heart would explode in worship. So, Lord, we give you the glory that you deserve this morning. We give you the honor that you deserve, God. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to begin to bring these things to pass in every life, God, right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, we declare that Satan and all of his works have been broken and defeated on the cross of Jesus. And therefore, we break his power. We break every curse in the name of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus over every life. And God, we say, come and do a work in us, Holy Spirit. Our faith is not in our own ability, but our faith is in what you have done on the cross. And we lift up your name, Jesus, and we give it all to you this morning. We give it all to you.